Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Thursday the 21st of December. I'm Stephanie Smale, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yugara people in Brisbane. Today, a terrible milestone in the 10-week-old war in Gaza as talks continue in Egypt over a second ceasefire. The CSIRO weighs in on the nuclear option for Australia. We look at what it's found and... Grandsile, Grandsile, Grandsile. Where? In Brunswick and Footscray. Franco Cozzo. Over the pleasure... Tributes in Melbourne for businessman Franco Cozzo, whose iconic TV ads defined the 1990s. But first today, flood recovery teams and locals across far north Queensland are making their way through mountains of mud and waste in the lead-up to Christmas. As the battle to clear roads and get fuel and supplies into isolated areas continues, the mass evacuation of the hard-hit community of Woodjul Woodjul is continuing for a third day. And its feared ex-tropical cyclone Jasper could cause more havoc across Cape York, as Gavin Coote reports. Brooke Nakora, like many Daintree Coast residents, is used to living off the grid, but a lack of food and other essentials has been taking a toll. Yeah, I think the reality is definitely sort of sinking in and I think we had two options and it was to do nothing or to do something. And I think by choosing the something route, we've been able to sort of calm down a little bit and and have that knowing that help is on its way and, and wheels are in motion. So I think with that, spirits are pretty good, really. While some major roads are once again operational, some communities north of Cairns are relying on boats to get around and stock up on essentials. So we managed to get Cape Trib quite a lot of fuel yesterday, which was awesome, uh, and some really desperate people out and back to their families. So that was very successful. Uh, it was. We also then on that turnaround uh, collecting the fuel, we just received so much uh, in terms of donated food. The Defence Force has flown about 250 residents of Woodjul Woodjul to Cooktown this week and is aiming to relocate the remainder of locals today. Overseeing the mammoth recovery job is Jake Elwood, who heads up the Queensland Reconstruction Authority. He says the authority is prioritising the damage assessment and clean-up and ensuring there are enough essential supplies in the meantime. Now that they're in Cooktown, uh, we're very confident that we can make sure that they are, they are sustained. Um, we have now uh, air uh, access into Cooktown, so uh, supplies can be kept up. So in my mind, that is very uh, well stabilised. The key will be then looking to Woodjul Woodjul and, and looking at the clean-up there. Dave and Connie Pinson are among those stranded and about to receive a food drop just north of the Daintree River. Just essentials, of course. I don't think we'll be getting caviar and truffle omelettes. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. We're all getting very low on food. We've got access to one store only, a little service station. All the basic supplies are totally gone. And while the pair is cut off from other parts of the region, they're thankful there's now some access within the neighbourhood. Locals have been absolutely amazing with tractors and front-end loaders and an army of people with chainsaws. That connected us to each other. And it, the community spirit I, I, brings me to tears. It's the little things. Local mechanic offered to sharpen everyone's chainsaws for free. That's really important. People are sharing food if they've got excess of one item. 
Authorities are now on alert for more possible flooding in northern Australia. Some vulnerable residents have been evacuated from the Cape York community of Kawanyama, where rivers are expected to reach the major flood level in the coming days. Jake Elwood from the Queensland Reconstruction Authority again. Look, we're watching very carefully. You know, we, we know that the water flows uh, both ways and, uh, and so we are in contact with them and obviously always plans are in place, alert, not alarmed. Jake Elwood from the Queensland Reconstruction Authority ending that report by Gavin Coote and Elizabeth Cramsey. Lawyers for Network 10 have begun summing up their case in the defamation claim brought against the broadcaster by former political staffer Bruce Lerman. The federal court has spent four weeks examining whether Channel 10 defamed Mr Lerman in an interview with Brittany Higgins, where she detailed her rape allegation. Mr Lerman has always maintained his innocence and a criminal trial in the ACT last year collapsed after juror misconduct, with no findings against him. Patrick Bell is following the case and I spoke to him a short time ago. Steph, Network 10 has described Bruce Lehrman as a fundamentally dishonest man as it began its closing arguments in the federal court today. Barrister Matthew Collins has accepted that of the two critical witnesses in this case, that being Bruce Lehrman and Brittany Higgins, that there have been attacks on both of their credibility. But he's argued that the success of those attacks on Mr Lehrman's credibility is quite different. And that's because Network 10 has identified eight details in the lead-up to their entry into uh, Senator Linda Reynolds' office on the night in question, which uh, it says have been corroborated by independent evidence but that Bruce Lehrman has denied. These included the evidence of him buying drinks for Brittany Higgins, which he initially denied uh, before being presented with CCTV footage uh, that showed he did, in fact, buy two drinks for her uh, at the Canberra pub they were at on the night in question, and also that Bruce Lehrman had lied to Parliament House security to gain access into Parliament House, something that he uh, accepted throughout the course of his evidence. And ultimately what this has built to is a conclusion from Network 10's barrister that there is a limited range of things that could have happened in the office of Senator Linda Reynolds in that 40-minute period. In Matthew Collins' words, they weren't there to play Scrabble. And so, in his view, he's, he's put to Justice Michael Lee that the reasonable conclusion to draw was, uh, at the very least, that there was sexual intercourse that took place and they've argued that from that it, it's not a big jump to accept that it was non-consensual given that neither Bruce Lemon nor Brittany Higgins have argued that there was any consensual sexual activity. The interview didn't name Mr Lerman. What's the network had to say about whether it identified him? That's right. That is a critical part of this case because uh, even if the truth question is unresolved, if the court finds it did not identify Mr Lehrman, then uh, the case uh, doesn't really uh, go too much further. Network 10 has argued that the vast majority of its almost one million viewers on terrestrial television and online had no idea that the unnamed person accused by Brittany Higgins was Bruce Lehrman. There were three witnesses that Mr Lehrman's team called 
in the early stages of this trial. Uh, Network 10 has argued that two of them have conceded they had other details uh, to base their view off that uh, the unnamed person accused was Bruce Lehman and another witness accepted that it could have been someone else. And so on that basis, uh, the network has concluded that there's been no evidence to uh, suggest that any one person identified Bruce Lehman from the broadcast of the project. And it had earlier argued that most of the work to identify him had in fact been done by News.com and the article written by Samantha Maiden earlier on that same day. Patrick Bell reporting and closing arguments from Bruce Lerman's lawyers are expected in court tomorrow. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. There are hopes ceasefire negotiations between Hamas and Israel will continue, despite initial talks in Egypt ending without agreement. The United Nations Security Council is also working towards a resolution to call for an urgent humanitarian pause in Gaza, but it's been postponed again as members grapple with details. Meanwhile, the health ministry in Gaza says the death toll in the territory has now passed 20,000. Rachel Hayter reports, and a warning this story contains distressing details. The last time this happened, Israel and Hamas struck a temporary truce. Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh is in Cairo, Egypt, for talks, along with a high-level delegation. They ended today without results, but smaller Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad says its leader is en route too to try to negotiate an end to a war that's now killed 20,000 Palestinian people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. A small boy clings to the side of his mother's stretcher at Nasser Hospital in Han Yunus in southern Gaza. Someone lifts the child onto the injured woman's chest and she holds him against her body as she's wheeled away. Meanwhile, a man rushes a tiny girl in a pink tracksuit through the hospital doors. A doctor listens to the child's heartbeat before she's passed to an older girl with her arm in a sling. The Israeli military is claiming it's just uncovered another vast tunnel network under Gaza City. They say they've found command and control positions, meeting rooms and hideout apartments for the most senior leaders of Hamas. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the war won't stop until Hamas is eliminated. We continue the war until the end. It will continue until Hamas is eliminated, until victory. Those who think we will stop are not connected to reality. We will not stop fighting until we achieve all of the goals we have set. Israel declared war after Hamas broke through the heavily guarded Gaza perimeter on October 7, killing 1,200 people and taking 240 hostages, some of whom were released during a brief truce a month ago. But more than 100 are still being held by militants in Gaza, including Ruby Chen's son. The American father is pleading with diplomats to do more to free the 19-year-old. I urge you to act, do what you can, because my kid, I don't want him in a bag. I still have hope, but that hope each day that passes by, much more difficult. So I ask you, I plead, I beg, 
Please. The United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says the US now expects Israel to reduce the intensity of its military operations. We expect to see and want to see a shift to more targeted operations with a smaller number of forces that's really focused in on dealing with the leadership of Hamas, the tunnel network and a few other critical things. But much of the rest of the world wants not a slowdown of fighting, but a halt. Australia joined 152 other nations last week in voting in the United Nations General Assembly for a humanitarian ceasefire and the immediate release of hostages. Now the more powerful United Nations Security Council has again postponed a meeting in New York to discuss a resolution calling for urgent humanitarian pauses in Gaza. A draft resolution by the United Arab Emirates also called for the return of hostages and a two-state solution for Israel and Palestinians. The UAE ambassador Lana Nusaber says everyone wants to see a resolution that's implementable on the ground. People are giving it their attention at the highest levels of the capitals that have leverage on this. So I think you have to be optimistic in diplomacy, otherwise we wouldn't all come into this building every day. But in another sense, if this fails, then we will continue to keep trying because we have to keep trying. There is too much suffering on ground for the council to continue to fail. The United States blocked previous resolutions using its veto powers as one of the five permanent members of the Security Council. Rachel Hayter reporting. Protests have been held inside and outside India's parliament after a record number of opposition MPs were suspended by the Narendra Modi government. More than 140 MPs have been stopped from entering parliament so far. South Asia correspondent Meghna Bali reports from New Delhi. Bracing a New Delhi winter's day, holding placards and flags, protesters marched near India's Parliament House against the suspension of lawmakers. For the first time in India's history, more than 140 MPs have been barred from Parliament, and most of them belong to opposition parties. Suspended MP Dr Sayed Nasir Hussain says the move was undemocratic. This is a completely dictatorial government. It's my way or highway here. You cannot put 141 opposition MPs out of the parliament and then say that we are having a discussion in the parliament. You can't say that you bring your own bill, you speak on your own bill, you pass your own bill. Then what is the opposition for that? The suspensions come following a security breach at parliament last week. Where two men were able to jump from the visitors' gallery into the chambers of the lower house and let off gas canisters. The incident happened on the anniversary of a deadly terrorist attack on India's parliament in 2001. Police eventually arrested the perpetrators, but lawmakers, including Dr. Hussain, demanded answers from the government's senior leaders. We just wanted to know who are these guys. We wanted to know who brought them inside who was uh, one who was responsible for the breach of security in the parliament. We just wanted to know that and every member has a right to know that because more than 700 members of parliament from both the houses, if they are not secure, then how do you think that the government will give security to the people of the country? The men had entered the building using passes given to them by a BJP MP. 
Sarifa Rahman, a young member of the Congress Party, the main opposition to the government, says the move could lead to legislation being passed without the opportunity for dissent. And if you see, only all the oppositions have been raising the voice and all the opposition MPs have been, you know, suspended. Why? Because they always try things that whenever there is, they want to pass something, bring a new bill, what they do is they used to suspend all the MPs and do their things because the opposition is not present, so they can easily pass it with their own MPs. This is what they try to do every time. The ABC reached out to the BJP for comment but was told that this was a matter for Parliament, not the government. The Federal Home Ministry is investigating the breach. The protests come at a crucial time as Indians head to the polls in less than six months and Mr Modi's opposition based their campaign on his record of undermining democracy. South Asia correspondent Meg Nabali reporting. The debate over whether Australia should start using nuclear energy has been a big focus this year, particularly among federal politicians. But a new report from the CSIRO has found that nuclear energy is currently the most expensive way for Australia to transition to a cleaner electricity grid. The report finds renewables such as wind and solar are still the cheapest source of new energy by comparison. Fatima Alumi reports. To sceptics, the report delivers a final nail in the coffin for nuclear energy in Australia. In a study today, the nation's leading scientific body, the CSIRO, and the energy regulator, AEMO, reports it'll cost far too much. The draft report has found the cost of nuclear power is significantly higher than renewable energy, and that's including the price of renewable transmission and storage. The coalition has been advocating nuclear power be considered for Australia. Chris Bowen is the energy minister. The opposition will need to take those facts into account. They are a fact-free zone when it comes to their energy policy. They are driven by ideology and a hatred of renewable energy. The reports also concluded that even if there were political support for small, modular nuclear reactors, it wouldn't be until 2038 before the first one could be built. In the past, the energy regulator has come under fire for not including the full cost of renewable transmission and batteries when comparing energy sources. This report, however, makes it clear these costs have been taken into account. These criticisms in the past have been erroneous and ill-placed, but nevertheless, CSIRO and AEMO have agreed uh, to include uh, those costs between 2024 and 2030 in this report, even including those costs. It's very, very clear renewable energy is the cheapest. Paul Graham is the chief energy economist at the CSIRO and the lead author of the study. He says his report concludes nuclear energy won't be economically viable for Australia. It's probably fair to say it's four to five times more expensive. And it, it has been, based on the data we've got, the most impacted by the global inflationary pressures. The report references a proposed nuclear plant in Utah in the US. Just before the big supply chain crunch globally, they said the project would cost about $18,000 a kilowatt Australian. And then after the inflationary pressures, it went right up to $31,000 a kilowatt Australian. And that really makes the cost very high in the several hundred dollars a megawatt hour compared to uh, for variable renewables, you know, under to just over $100 a megawatt hour. 
Bruce Robertson, an energy market analyst, echoes these concerns. To go down a nuclear route when we are already going down a renewables route is a fool's errand. And it's a fool's errand because the whole point of a renewable system is is that it is a variable system. Nuclear does not produce on demand. It produces all the time. And much of the time, that electricity will be almost valueless. He says while nuclear power has delivered cheap prices in other countries, it won't here in Australia due to a lack of history in building nuclear plants. We have no Indigenous ability to produce a nuclear power plant because we've never done it. It's a totally new industry. And the ones offshore have experienced massive cost overruns. Energy market analyst Bruce Robertson ending Fatima Alumi's report and the world today reached out to the federal opposition but didn't receive a response in time for broadcast. Tributes are flowing for a man who made his mark on Melbourne, living the Australian dream Italian style. The beloved Melbourne furniture salesman Franco Cozzo has died surrounded by family, aged 88. He's being remembered as a symbol of Melbourne's burgeoning multicultural community and a pioneer of TV advertising in Australia. Oliver Gordon reports. Grand style, grand style, grand style. Where in Brunswick and Footscray. Furniture salesman to Melbourne icon. Franco Cozzo's distinctive hybridised Italian-Australian accent beamed into living rooms for decades. Selling lavish, ornate pieces, his TV ads were bilingual, catering to the many European migrants who'd moved to Australia after the Second World War. Mr Cozzo, originally from Sicily, arrived in Melbourne in the 1950s. He started selling electrical appliances door-to-door before opening stores in the inner-city suburbs of Melbourne. Tributes have flowed since his death last night. Victorian opposition leader John Pesuto has shared his memories. I'm really sad to hear of his passing as... The child of Italian migrants, he had a special significance in our household. But I suppose for migrants more generally, he was not only an iconic figure, I think he was somebody who became, in his own way, a symbol of migrant achievement. He remembers watching Cozzo's ads as a child. It was really reassuring to see the combination of English, uh, albeit a little broken, but English, and Italian in an advertisement like Franco Cozzo's advertisements because it gave people permission to be able to join the Australian community and family but also retain everything they'd brought with them, which is, I think, one of the hallmarks of the success of Australian multiculturalism. Such was Franco Cozzo's legacy. A giant mural of the man was painted outside his former flagship store in Footscray, it was here where one local was shedding a tear this morning, remembering times past. It's my son Joshua, he's 30. No, I'm teary. <laughs> no, my son's 30. And Franco used to always say hello to him in the morning. And Josh was autistic, so Josh was non-verbal. He used to come down, they used to say hello to each other and, and wave, if that makes sense. So it was, it was lovely. She says he's left a positive mark on this part of Melbourne. Well, like, sometimes you couldn't understand what he was saying because it was so thick, but, you know, he used to always smile and you knew Franco, he's iconic. In 2021, a documentary titled Palazzo di Cozzo was released. It was described as both a portrait of the man 
and social history of migration in Melbourne. It featured clips of a younger Kotso describing his early years. There you tell the difference of New Australia when they arrive in, in Australia, in this maravilloso country. <laughs> Italia, the first time they buy the house, single front house, they paint white inside, air side of the house. Yeah. Maltese, blue, Greek, I think it's pink. <laughs> and I say myself, this must be the gear. It documents his uncompromising commitment to his business and the role his advertising played in its success. Australia, I am very proud to bring to you this magnifico barocco. Yes, only you can buy from Franco Cotto. The ads have been praised for their cultural significance. Marketing guru Toby Ralph says they were also very well executed pieces of work. It was, it was utterly differentiated, which is one of the things you want to achieve with advertising. He puts that down to Kotso's willingness to put it all out there every time the camera rolled. He was utterly himself on telly. You know, he had sharp suits, he had flailing arms, he had that wonderfully rich accent that was so unfamiliar when he first launched himself into our lounge rooms. He used television like a battering ram. You know, it's, it's a sad thing that he's had his last grand sale but, uh, gee, what a well-lived life. Franco Cozzo is survived by his wife and ten children. Oliver Gordon reporting with Kimberly Price. And that's all from the World Today team. I'm Stephanie Smale. Thanks for your company.